Hey there, and welcome to Truth Be Told, a theology and apologetics podcast not claiming to have all of the answers, but created to analytically look at the truth contained in the Bible and encourage critical thinking on how to apply that truth to our lives. I'm Micah Gunn, and I appreciate you listening in. No matter your level of understanding or knowledge, I sincerely hope and pray that you find these words edifying, informative, and beneficial. So let's get started. Hey everyone, once again, this is Micah Gunn, and today on Truth Be Told, I'd like to start off by uh, going over a story with you that I heard a while back, and this story takes place in 1974 in the Philippines. And in that year, a bunch of news reporters, photographers, members of government, general citizens, ex-military, and even the president himself of the Philippines, Ferdinand Marcos, gathered in the Philippines to witness and accept the surrender of a man who for 29 years had continued World War II all by himself. This man's name was Hiro Onoda, and he was a Japanese soldier, and he'd been separated from his unit on an island called Lubang Island of the Philippines in uh, 1944. And when he landed, he was armed with a traditional samurai sword, and that was an antique and a family heirloom, so that really wasn't much of a weapon. Uh, He was also armed with a rifle with 500 rounds of ammunition, hand grenades, and a knife that his mother had given to him right before he left. And before you start to think that that's a sweet, you know, nice gesture from his mother, uh, with honor being such a big deal in Japan, she handed him the knife and told him to kill himself should he fail to act honorably in the war. And the other thing that he was armed with was direct orders to do all that he could to hamper enemy attacks on the island while destroying bridges and airstrips, and he had no option of surrender. This, is, this was the order passed down to him. He could not surrender, and he took his job very seriously. And, you know, you think, okay, 1944 to 1974, this is about 30 years, and why was he never informed that the war ended? If You know, why was he continuing to fight World War II basically by himself? Well, a lot of attempts were actually made to tell him the war was over. Planes were sent over the island and dropped um, messages to him saying the war was over, and he continued to chalk these up as ploys by the United States military to get him to surrender. And instead of, you know, making him stop and think about, okay, is this true or, you know, what should my reaction be? He actually thought he was doing a great job because he figured, you know, if he's the only one left and he's still fighting so strongly that the U.S. military is putting all this effort into getting him to stop and trying to pull this trick on him by telling him the war is over, um, he must be doing an excellent job of fighting. He must be, you know, making more of a dent than he thought. So he'd actually become more entrenched when these messages were sent out. And so over this 29-year period that Hiro Onoda was living on Lubang Island by himself, he destroyed several tactical points of infrastructure. He killed livestock. He burned fields of crops. He had shootouts with the police. And he actually ended up killing, it's not funny at all, but it's like, it's just impressive and kind of amazing at the same time. He killed 30 people using guerrilla warfare. So that's like a person a year that he killed. And that was with 500 rounds of ammunition, an old samurai sword, and a little knife. So he was, you know, for what he was doing, he was doing very well. And basically, Onoda was winning a war that nobody else was fighting. He and the rest of the world were busy playing different games, but they were on the same board, so they occupied the same space, right? The Filipinos occupied the space of Lubang Island, but he did too. And in his mind, he was winning that game, even though to the rest of the world, he was not. So he thought he was winning because his rules and his gameplay were totally different than the ones that the world had. Now, as hesitant as I am to compare each of us with a rogue Japanese soldier, what can we take away from this? Because I think a lot of us today feel like we are constantly losing. You know, there is a lot of suffering in the world and there is a lot of pain and difficulty and struggle just to maintain, 
you know, a regular life. We view our lives on this scale that society's put up. And when we don't measure up to that, we feel like we're losing. We feel like we've failed. But this is actually a problem because our lives can't and shouldn't be measured on the world scale because we should be playing a different game. So, for example, imagine playing any game and using another game's rules. Because this would seem crazy to us, right? I mean, do you know what checkmate means in a game of tic-tac-toe? Well, it doesn't really mean anything. Or what about a home run in a game of checkers? Nothing. I mean, if you stood up in the middle of a game of checkers and shouted that you had just scored a home run, the other person would probably, at the very least, look strangely at you, but probably laugh at you. Because when you're playing a different game on the same board, it doesn't compute with the rest of the world. So why are we judging our lives based on the goals that the world has? It, it doesn't really make sense. Suffering and struggle and difficulty and shortcomings don't really mean anything to this world. They are just unattractive qualities and they're uncomfortable to talk about and they're awkward and they're actually not even meant to be talked about. You know, it's like, you know, put your best self forward and post only the good pictures on social, social media and it's meant to be silently dealt with. So when you look at your life through a wor the world standards that don't even talk about suffering, you will feel like you're losing. But you need to look at it through the lens of the game you are playing, or the game that you should be playing, rather. So today, we are going to be talking about suffering. And um, I know it's been done a lot. I know so many people have teachings on suffering. But it's taught a lot because it's universal. It's something that everybody deals with, but there really aren't many answers out there. And so that's what we're going to be talking about today. And it's kind of for those of you that are unable to understand why your life feels like so much of a struggle. And also for those of you who hear messages about suffering for your faith in an ungodly world, and you, you can't really connect with that idea. I have, I have friends like this. They, they're Christians and, and they feel like, why do we constantly talk about suffering? Like, I'm not suffering. It's not that hard to live in this world. And yeah, this is for you as well. I think there's a message here for everybody. And obviously the game that we should be playing in this analogy here is Christianity. And while the world seems to focus their gameplay on self-gain, Christianity, in a sense, now not, not in all ways, but in a sense, is self-destructive by contrast. And this is really hard to understand, I think, because we can sometimes feel that we've been called into and adopted a way of life that should be the fix-all, not the thing that destroys us, right? Like, no one signs up for Christianity thinking, yeah, okay, well, I'm ready for my life to be destroyed. You know, we hear of lives being made better by growing in faith and submitting to God, but we see Christians facing difficult things all over the place. You know, we, we think this should be a fix-all, this should, you know, Christianity has all the answers, God, an all-powerful God, should have all the answers, and when we join Christianity, it's like a secret club that gives those answers directly to us. And even the world can think this about Christianity, or, or at least thinks that we think it about ourselves. And that's why we're met with so many challenges, because it's like, oh, you don't have an answer to this, or this, or this? And I'm not saying we don't have a lot of answers, but that's just not how we see ourselves. I mean, um, Matthew 16, for example, the people that, that want to say that Christianity has all the answers and that it should, you know, why is it not leading to a successful life? Or they'll, they'll use that as an argument against Christianity. And we can actually do it ourselves if we're, if we feel that we're suffering enough. I don't think we've like looked at the scripture enough and, and see what it says about our faith. Matthew 16 and verse 24, Jesus says to his disciples, is a pretty common scripture, if anyone desires to come after me, so if anyone desires to become a Christian, follow after Christ, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So take up your cross, that's, you know, pointing to the crucifixion of Christ, which was not easy. So if anyone desires to be a Christian, deny yourself and submit to persecution by following Christ. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, 
but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? So this is Jesus Christ, the leader of our, of our church, outlining the status quo for us. If you desire Christ, which we all claim to when we get baptized and we receive the Holy Spirit, we accept the status quo of no longer living for ourselves, but instead living for others and living for Christ, which automatically requires sacrifice of yourself and sometimes requires suffering. And I think inherently we know this, right? I mean, for all of you that are, are not Christians and you have this view of Christianity, like you need to challenge that faith and, and think like, okay, well, why don't you have an answer to this? Or, or if Christianity is the answer to everything, then why are you suffering? Or, or why is your life difficult? And for those of you that are Christians, if you're thinking that, go to church. Because as soon as you go to church, what you think should be a group full of pious people living happy, wonderful lives with all of the answers, you'll actually see a family of absolutely broken people just trying their best to hold it together. But I think it is a fair question to ask, how is this possible? How are these things reconciled? If my faith tells me that you know, if, if my God, let's put it that way, if my God tells me, follow me, and that is the answer to everything you'll ever need, then why are we still suffering? Why are we trying so hard just to hold things together? And that's what we're going to be looking at today. And the short answer is, before we, we go into the whole long answer, the short answer is, your faith can change your life's ultimate terminus. It can change your mindset and by proxy it can change your life but it is not going to stop bad things from happening to you god is not going to stop all bad things from happening to you because the truth is christianity does not guarantee us success in this life not that there aren't principles that can help guide us through it but we need to understand our reality better and that is the fact that this way of life is guaranteed, straight from the Bible, it is guaranteed to be difficult. So, if you're struggling right now and you're thinking, you're like, what gives? Or, you know, why am I the only person going through this? Listen in, because the Bible is full of things that essentially prophesy the difficulties that you're going through right now. And that's kind of interesting because we never think of, you know, our own lives, or maybe we think about it, but we, we often don't see evidence of our own lives being that closely related to the Bible. We, we compare our lives to the Bible and we try and live our lives by the Bible, but it's, it's once every so often that we think, you know, we're kind of a part of that Bible story. And so that I think this can be seen here because the difficulties you're going through have literally been prophesied about. And I think that's really cool. And so if you're not struggling and you feel really comfortable in the world currently, also listen in because there might be some things you need to adjust. And to be clear, I'm, I'm not saying that in order to be a Christian, you must be suffering at all times. I'm not here to say that you can't live a relatively normal life. I'm just attempting to express to those people that are suffering currently that there is direction for you from the Bible. And admittedly, that direction can be hard to want to listen to when you're suffering. You know, it, it it's not something that just instantly fixes everything once you know it or read it from the Bible. And I, I was honestly a little bit hesitant to do this topic because, um, I mean, obviously I'm a human and I have suffered. I've struggled, um, not to the extent that so many other people in the world have, but to the extent that probably some of my listeners have, absolutely. Like I've gone through difficult times and I think all humans are qualified to speak on suffering just for the sheer fact that we're all in the same boat. So any advice that anybody can give to anyone about things they've found helpful to deal with, you know, struggles in life, I think, you know, go ahead and share them because that's, that's just nothing but a benefit to everybody. It, at worst, it's neutral, but um, yeah, I, I was nervous because I can't change things 
for you. You know, I, I can show you what the Bible says, but I can't change your circumstance and I can't change your attitude. And I was kind of afraid of doing the, you know, that, that section in James 2. I think it's um, James 2, I think it's 15. It says, if a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you don't give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? And I, I really don't want to do this because I can, like I said, I can show you something so that you know it, but to truly feel it, to feel better, that requires effort on your part, prayer, and God's help. So, for example, I can show you that suffering doesn't mean that you're failing, and I can show you that you're not alone in your suffering, and I can show you what the Bible says to those who suffer to encourage you, but I can't make you feel better. And I, I do pray God uses these words to benefit you, but if you don't feel better at the end of this, please do not be discouraged because this is only an analysis of suffering. And hopefully it's also an analysis of each of our lives so that we can survey our attitudes and where we are in this reality through the appropriate lens of Christianity. That's, that's really, really what I hope for today. Because I'm trying to have us all reflect on our lives and look at what the Bible says about suffering going hand in hand with Christianity and see if there's anything we need to change, which we might not want to do, but anything we need to change in order to stop swimming with the current of the world, if that's the position we find ourselves in. And if you aren't suffering currently or feel that your life's been pretty good up to this point, I'm not trying to call into question your Christianity either. Because if you're someone who's a Christian and you feel, you know, I haven't really suffered much in my life, you might go through a lot of difficult things, but you already have the appropriate attitude that is going to make things better for you. And if you're someone who isn't suffering currently, that's okay. I mean, God doesn't want only suffering for your life. So don't be too quick because of what we discussed today to try and rush towards things that are going to make you suffer because that is not the intent of what I'm talking about. My main goal is that I want all of us to think critically about where we are, whether we're suffering or not, whether we have feel like we've never suffered, or if we feel like we only have very brief reprieves from suffering. I just want, me to want us to think critically about where we are, what the Bible says about suffering, and think about what our response should be depending on where we are. That's really the main goal for today. That is all I'm trying to do. So I, I hope that um, you come to this with, you know, ready to give me a little bit of grace, understanding that I, I don't know everything and I, I can't fix everything. Uh, I can't even change your mind on, on things. That's really up to you. But I can show you what the Bible says and I can, I can show you what an appropriate response looks like. So let's get started. Um, into the Bible now. So if you would, if you're following along with me, turn to Ecclesiastes 9. This is a, you know, a pretty obvious place to start uh, when talking about difficulties in life. Ecclesiastes 9, and we will start reading in verse 11. And here Solomon says, I returned, or who I assume is Solomon, most people believe it's Solomon. He says, I returned and saw under the sun that the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong nor bread to the wise, nor riches to men of understanding, nor favor to men of skill, but time and chance happen to them all. For man also does not know his time, like fish taken in a cruel net, like birds caught in a snare, so the sons of men are snared in an evil time when it falls suddenly upon them. And I love this section of scripture. Ecclesiastes is one of my favorite books. Um, it's very poetic, but also very practical. And uh, Solomon does this over and over again, where he pairs the good and the bad in some kind of juxtaposition. And I, I really just love that because first he's talking about how the good things don't always come to the best people. Then he goes further to say that the bad things sometimes do come to those that don't deserve it or do come to the best people. And this, this kind of like, um, 
juxtaposing thought is, is very popular in Hebrew uh, literature. But what I want to focus on today is the middle line. Time and chance happen to them all. Because this is to say that there is some level of suffering or goodness that come to life by time and chance. So not every ounce of difficulty you go through can be pinned onto your faith and worn like a badge of courage through persecution. But additionally, not every great and wonderful thing happens in your life because you choose to walk the Christian path. Sometimes you do right and bad happens. Sometimes you do right and good happens. Sometimes you do bad and good happens, and sometimes you do bad and bad happens. Sometimes God guides all of this directly, and sometimes he lets time and chance and human will kind of just work itself out. And I think this is one of the most important verses we could go to when confronting the problem of evil. And for those of you that don't know, the problem of evil is a popular discussion point for critics of Christianity, but also Christians as well, who struggle with the fact that there is evil in the world and how could a loving, perfect, merciful God allow evil to be in the world. And I think this verse uh, covers a lot, a lot of ground when we're discussing the problem of evil. I also think it shows that we need to be careful because while evil and suffering definitely have a strong correlation, this does not mean that they're the same thing or always a direct cause and effect of each other. And we can kind of end up being a little bit hypocritical if we start to think of these two very separate things improperly. For example, we could say, how could God allow a child to die of a sickness? And this verse in Ecclesiastes shows that time and chance happen to us all. So before you even begin to question God and his motives, recognize that you might inadvertently be blaming him for something that he didn't even directly cause. Because sickness is not always a direct cause of evil. In John 9 verse 2, Jesus is talking to his disciples and they're walking through the streets and they see a blind man and they said, who sinned that this man was born blind? him or his parents and Jesus' answer is no which is pretty funny but it's like nobody nobody sinned for this man to be blind he is blind and, and in this circumstance he's blind um, so that the glory of God might be revealed at that time and, and Christ heals him but on the flip side when we discuss suffering itself we can start to get a little bit self-righteous in our own eyes we'll say things like why me? Or I've been good. I've listened. I'm decent. Or like David said, why do the wicked prosper? And we know that David had the wrong perspective. And so if I asked you, like, what does God owe you? You would probably say nothing because you, you know that inherently. But when you suffer, you can start to feel that your goodness should have earned you something. And like, like we own good lives or we are owed these good lives. And that kind of reminds me of um, this section in the Screwtape Letters, which is an amazing book by C.S. Lewis, if you haven't read it. And uh, basically, it's dialogue between two demons, one like a senior demon and one a kind of novice demon. And it's an uncle and a nephew. And the uncle is telling the nephew how to be a good demon while he's influencing a person on earth. And in one section, this uncle senior demon named Screwtape says, the sense of ownership in general is always to be encouraged. The humans are always putting up claims to ownership, which sound equally funny in heaven and in hell, and we must keep them doing so. Much of the modern resistance to chastity comes from men's belief that they own their bodies. Those vast and perilous estates pulsating with the energy that made the worlds in which they find themselves without their consent and from which they are ejected at the pleasure of another. Meaning God. He goes on to say, we produce this sense of ownership not only by pride, but by confusion. We teach them not to notice the different senses of the possessive pronoun, the finely graded differences that run from my boots through my dog my servant, 
my wife, my father, my master, my country, to my God. They can be taught to reduce all these senses to that of my boots, the my of ownership. We have taught them to say my God, in a sense not really very different from my boots, meaning the God on whom I have a claim for my distinguished services. And all the time the joke is that the word mine, in its fully possessive sense, cannot be uttered by a human being about anything. In the long run, either our father, it's a demon talking about Satan, or the enemy, which in this context is God, will say mine of each thing that exists, and specifically of each man. They will find out in the end, never fear, to whom their time, their souls, and their bodies really belong. Certainly not to them, whatever happens. And I, I know that's a, that's a long uh, little excerpt there, but I, I just love that section where he's talking about that because we can really like that is so true of humankind we say mine 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 of all these things we become so entitled even on things that just you know seem natural to us like i i do own those things but really our time isn't even our own we've been given all of that by the grace of god so either of these attitudes either you know attributing suffering to evil or not comprehending our suffering because of our goodness are totally wrong our faith should not depend upon only good things happening in our lives or healing from God or everything working out how we think it should. So in this you know, next part here, as, as we go forward, I'd like to look at certain people in the Bible. And we're going to go, just like we started in Ecclesiastes, which is pretty common to go to when you're talking about suffering, we're going to go to very common examples of people in the Bible who suffered, but hopefully look at them in not the same common way that you've heard. So it should be um, beneficial to still look at them. And first we're going to look at Paul, because Paul did suffer. But in my mind, this is very little comfort. You know, we are not Paul. Paul died, you know, thousands of years ago. Paul is, while we can read the things he's written, we don't know him personally. And so you might as well say, you know, hey, you know, someone on the other side of the world is suffering. Like, yes, that that might be true, but I can't feel that pain. So not not always is that a comfort to us. And like, for example, telling someone, you know, there are starving people in the world, it might make them shut up for a little bit, but it's not going to make them less hungry or think about their hunger any less. So instead of looking at Paul, you know, as this example of, um, you know, someone we can stand with in solidarity over our suffering. Let's look at the example he had while he was suffering to see what we should do. So turn to 2 Corinthians and verse 12. 2 Corinthians 12, and we'll start in verse 7. Uh, he says, And lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me, and he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And there's a couple interesting things here. For example, um, this is just kind of conjecture and, and things that I've thought of. I'm not sure that it's able to be proven as absolutely true, but um, God tells him that God's strength is made perfect in Paul's weakness. And so for Christ's sake, when Paul is weak, it says, then I am strong and I am is what Christ called himself. So I'm not saying that this is some hidden meaning of the text or anything. I'm just saying it's interesting and it, it's, it's possible that Paul is actually saying for Christ's sake, for when I am weak, then God is strong. Just echoing what God said a second ago in the verse. And I think that's pretty cool. I mean, it might not be true, but it's just something to think about. Um, additionally, it says that Paul prayed three times and sometimes people say like, oh, well, 
you know, he couldn't have been suffering that much. He only prayed three times. I've been dealing with my thing for this many years or my whole life. And, you know, three times is nothing. But, you know, three could, I, I tend to lean away from this thought, but it could potentially be a reference to three being a number of completion. And it could be showing that he prayed constantly. Or another alternative, and this is the one that I lean towards, is that, you know, he prayed three times, but also at the end of three times, God answered him. So he didn't need to pray about that anymore. You know, if, if you pray once and you hear nothing and two times and hear nothing, and on the third time, God says, absolutely not, then you don't need to pray again. Like God said, and now you listen. So I don't think we need to take this three times thing to be, I don't know, any indication for how hard Paul was suffering or anything like that. And um, the other thing I wanted to cover is the thorn in his flesh. A lot of people think very different things about this. Some people say it was an evil spirit. Some people say, even I've heard people say that it's like a difficult congregation or that Corinth, who he's writing to, was the thorn in his flesh. And I don't, I don't see that bearing itself out. Um, I, I lean towards a physical malady, probably something with his eyes. But I can't absolutely prove that, but it does seem to fit within scripture. But anyways, Paul is dealing with this thorn in his flesh, and he doesn't just learn to live with it, but he also learns to live with infirmities, reproaches, needs, persecutions, and distresses. And I think needs is a really interesting one too, because the other things are kind of uh, these external factors, and um, they're things that are happening almost additionally to his human life. So, you know, a lot of times the things that we suffer, and I'm not saying across the board, but for example, the things that I've, I've dealt with personally in my life have never been anything that are, you know, taking away my immediate needs for life. You know, I've always had food, shelter, water, um, even my like secondary needs, like family, friends, things like that. I've always pretty much had those things. But Paul, when he says needs here, to me, that points to the fact that he has learned to uh, like kind of deal with all of these difficult things, but then also to suffer needs, like not having enough food or water or shelter. Like that's, that's kind of a big deal that not a lot of us can relate to. So rather than looking at this verse and saying, oh, well, Paul probably wasn't dealing with something that difficult if he only prayed three times, instead... Look at his attitude where he's learned to deal with not just the thorn in his flesh, which is what he, you know, is praying about, but all of these other things, including basic needs for life. So what's the conclusion on Paul? The Paul who suffered, in his own words, persecutions, infirmities, reproaches, needs, distresses, and in other books, shipwrecks, imprisonments, and beatings, and in this verse, negative answers or even silence from God that caused him, in his own words, again, to actually despair of life, is the same exact Paul who said later in Philippians, this is Philippians 4 verse 6, be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. So he didn't let his life's difficulties taint his attitude on God's goodness because God's goodness and Paul's faith in him did not require Paul's life to be good. It wasn't some kind of trade that Paul was making with God, faith for good life. It, it was faith in God because God is good even when your life is not. And I think that is such an important lesson to take away from the example of Paul. And he even, you know, he said, but everything or but in everything by prayer and supplication he didn't say well trust me guys i've prayed before and i didn't get what i wanted he is telling people to pray and to suffocate and he, to do it with thanksgiving on top of all of that you know even though paul's experience hadn't been answered prayers all the time he still prays with thanksgiving so paul's attitude is totally um contrary to what we might see from our own attitudes if we went through similar things. Now let's move on to another figure in the Bible, probably an even more common one than Paul, and that is Job. 
because often when we discuss and they, they do come together quite a bit in, in different teachings. Um, but Paul and Job, when they're discussed together, we, we outline their suffering a lot, but I only ever really hear people working towards a conclusion to say like, look, these people in the Bible suffered and you know, you're not alone and take comfort in them because they dealt with difficult things. Like that's, that's good. And if that helps you, then take it use it absolutely it's just not what i'm going to choose to focus on today um, instead of comparing paul and job and saying look at these men who suffered we're actually going to be contrasting both of them and their reactions because job suffered horrible things even while being called blameless and upright and his attitude was very different than paul because he allowed it after a while to make him start to question god so and I, I want to be careful because sometimes I think Job gets a bit of a bad rap. You know, he he did uh, start to question God, but this is also the exact response a lot of us have. Um, but you know, with with this reaction, we, we should be looking at does it work, or or how did it work out for Job? Because if this is how we tend to react more often, shouldn't we know what the outcome is? Because Job, you know, he actually did pretty well. He bore with God for a lot of the book. And presumably, I mean, I can't tell you how long the narrative actually lasts, but presumably he dealt with it for a lot longer than a lot of us do in the face of difficulty. And again, not everybody, but, you know, he is kind of the go-to person to look at who, people who suffer. But eventually, after a while of bearing with God, Job accuses God of acting unjustly. Job, you know, wants an audience with God to plead his case. And Job kind of overestimates his goodness. And he also requires answers of why from God. And so we need to look at this. And if you're someone suffering right now, look at this through your own, your own eyes and ask yourself, do you ever feel that God's being unfair? Now, I'm not saying do you ever feel hurt or do you ever feel confused by what God does? I'm not saying that we can't know everything that God has planned, but do you ever feel that truthfully he's being unfair to you, that he is out to get you for anything? Because I think we can, or do you ever feel owed an answer or do you ever overestimate your goodness and say, you know, I've actually done nothing wrong. I don't know why this is happening to me because that's what Job did. And, you know, all in one story piled up together like that, it seems like, okay, yeah, Job didn't have the right response. But even one of these things is not the right response. So this is something we need to be analyzing our own lives in. Uh, turn with me to Job 42. Job 42 in verse 5, this is um, after God has questioned Job and Job has kind of seen the error of his ways. And he says in verse 5 of Job 42, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear. So he's, you know, he's heard of God before. He He's heard God and he, he understands, you know, we, we could say, you know, we've, we've read the Bible and we, we know it but now we fully see it. And that's what Job is going through. He, he fully sees God now. And in that light, his reaction is that he abhors himself and repents in dust and ashes. This actually reminds me of another uh, C.S. Lewis quote. I won't go through the whole excerpt or even the quote. It's in Mere Christianity. But uh, Lewis is talking about the end time and being face to face with the perfection of God. And it's a time we all look forward to and it'll be, you know, this glorious time of um, recompense and justification. And, you know, like that's the time that God has vengeance on the world and we will be justified before him. And it's going to be this awesome time where we are finally unified with God. And, and that is true. Like, I don't want to belittle that time because I'm greatly looking forward to it as well. But Lewis kind of points out that this wonderful time, it will also be a terrible and terrifying time because we're going to be face to face with the perfection of God. And in that perfection, when we finally can compare ourselves face to face with that perfection, 
we're going to see just how imperfect we are. We're going to see just how dirty and despicable and sinful we are. And, you know, it will be a time to be wiped clean and to be unified with God. But initially, it's like looking in a mirror and we're going to see, you know, after all of our lives, how we've measured up to the standard we've set for ourselves and that God has set for us. And that's himself. And none of us are going to measure up very well. So this is kind of what Job does. He sees God, um, maybe, probably not physically, but he, he sees God in the way that he understands him more fully now, and he abhors himself in that reflection, and he repents in dust and ashes. And so in this time, we're finally going to feel the thing that we already know to be true. We don't deserve anything for the tiny amount of goodness that we have inside of us. No matter how big we think that goodness is, it's really not. So what's the conclusion on Job? I think the conclusion is that Job's suffering caused him to lose sight for a little bit of time. He became increasingly concerned with the loss of his success in life, and he believed for a little bit of time that the rules he was playing by, following God's way, that those rules should allow him to win the game that the world is playing. Meaning, you know, material wealth, prosperity, good health, and all of that. That's that's the lesson from Job, and it's it's the wrong reaction that we should be, you know, warned against and, and lean away from, because it's also the reaction we can fall into most often. Alright, one more. Let's look at, you know, the most obvious person going through persecution, especially that didn't deserve it, and that is Jesus Christ. And let's go to Hebrews 12, verse 3. Hebrews 12 and verse 3 here talking about Christ. It says, For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. So this is the author of Hebrews recognizing that far into the future, humans are going to consistently have this problem where they become weary and discouraged in their souls because he knows what they're going to have to endure as Christians. So what does he exhort you to do? He exhorts you to consider Christ because Christ also endured, like it says, hostility from sinners against himself. So lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls, consider Christ. Verse four says, you have not yet resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin. And you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as to sons. And in between these verses, I think it kind of shifts focus because first it's talking about, you know, the natural frustrations and persecutions and sufferings that we are all going to go through as Christians. You know, you, you have not yet resisted to bloodshed. And I, I like that it says yet because it shows that you could. Um, you have not yet resisted a bloodshed striving against sin. So this is the call we all have. We are all called to strive against sin. But then verse 4 kind of shifts focus to things that are not just external, but things that God actually causes in order to grow us. And that those are another kind of difficulty that we're going to face as Christians. You know, we submit ourselves to God and his will. And there are going to be times where the difficulty in our lives is, you know, chastening from God. And this is what it's talking about here in verse four, or sorry, verse five. And it says, verse five, and you have forgotten the exhortation, which speaks to you as to sons. And then it quotes the old Testament. It says, my son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you're rebuked by him for whom the Lord loves. He chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. So if you are a son of God, you are going to be rebuked. You're going to you're going to be scourged. You're going to deal with some level of correction, but he's doing it in love. So that, I mean that's a very important distinction, and it goes further on um, here in verse seven to make that distinction even clearer, talking about um, the chastening of our earthly fathers and the chastening of our heavenly Father. So verse seven says, "If you endure chastening." God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, this is very important here, but if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate 
and not sons. So this is the part of scripture here where I would like to ask all of us who feel, you know, at times when when we feel comfortable, and I'm not saying again that you have to be suffering all the time, but if you feel very comfortable in this world, you might want to check what's going on in your life because we're not meant to be comfortable, not completely comfortable anyways, and not always comfortable. Because if we are, we're probably not experiencing the chastening of the Lord. And that's not to say that some people just don't have right attitudes. And when they experience that chastening, they recognize it as chastening out of love from God. And if that's you, then that's great. You are leaps and bounds beyond me and probably a lot of us. But um, I do think it's still something to consider. You know, if you are not being chastened, if you are not being scourged in love from God, it says here, if you are without that chastening, then you are illegitimate and not sons. So we might want to check our lives. This is the part where we need to analyze our lives and see, are we too comfortable here? Because while we're meant to bear fruit all the time, this is not, or it should not be the environment that we thrive in. This world is like a fire and we're like plants. And yes, we're supposed to bear fruit as plants, but if this is the environment that you thrive in, it is probably not due to some uh, superhuman strength on your part. It's either due to God allowing you to do well, or it is because you have allowed yourself to uh, compromise a little bit too much. So check on yourself and, and make sure, am I, am I a legitimate son? Do I experience the chastening of the Lord? Um, it's actually so something that we should be desiring. You know, we should desire that correction. So I don't want to spend any more time on that, but I just, I think it's very important to uh, notice the implications of that because without chastening, that means if you're living a life with no difficulty at all, and I'm not talking about external difficulty where, you know, like it says before, when we strive against sin, there's a natural difficulty that's going to come with that. But other kinds of difficulty that come directly from God, if we don't have any of that, then it says here, then we are not his sons. We are illegitimate. Let's keep going. Verse, verse nine. Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the father of spirits and live? And that is so true. You know, sometimes, sometimes we treat God like our father and even that's inappropriate because he is while he is our father and it's not inappropriate to treat him like that we sometimes treat our earthly fathers not too well and we think oh well god's my father i can treat him inappropriately as well well neither of those things are okay but especially with god but it does say here you know when we're corrected by our fathers we still grow up and we we love them and we respect what they did to correct us and to guide us along the right path at least in hindsight but with God, it's it's difficult because we might not ever get that hindsight in this life. Sometimes we do, but there might be some things that just aren't answered. Some things that you don't ever get the reason or the answer as to why it's happening to you. But how much more should we readily respect God? You know, I, I think that's that's an important distinction. So once one more time furthermore we have had human fathers who corrected us and we paid them respect shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the father of spirits and live for they indeed for a few days talking about our earthly fathers chastened us as seemed best to them but he for our profit that we may be partakers of his holiness now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present but painful Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So if you have an earthly father and you don't understand why they're chastening you, later on, you will get an answer as to why. You know, you will understand that either they thought they did what was best and you can respect them for that, even if it turns out not to be the best, or it was for the best and you just couldn't see it at the time. The difference is with God, you might, like I said before, you might not see the end result until after your life. You know, this physical life might actually never yield you the perfect answers that you want. But nevertheless, afterward, it does yield the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So this is our training ground. 
And that, that can be a hard thing to wrap our mind around, you know, not getting answers. We are a very curious people, especially when we're suffering and we want to know why. So what's our takeaway from this verse? I think there's a couple questions we need to ask ourselves. One is, have I suffered unto death or bloodshed when I'm striving against sin? So that's the first section where it's talking about striving against sin. And you need to ask yourself, in this suffering I'm dealing with as I strive against sin, have I suffered unto bloodshed or death? If yes, then as bad as I feel for you, and as much as I will pray for you, and I sincerely hope that that trial goes away, um, if you're dealing with bloodshed, then good job, because it means that you've followed Christ. You know, you signed up to be a Christian, and Christ said, great, you've chosen to follow me, I'm going straight through persecution and straight through death. He kind of barreled those things down to the ground, but we have to follow him to that. So if you're a Christian thinking that Christ moved those things out of the way for you, and now you'll never have to deal with them, that is not the case at all. Christ went first through persecution and to death, and we have to be willing to follow him through both of those things as well. So if yes, I'm sorry, but good job because that's what you're called to do. And if not, then you need to make sure that you're not complaining about it because you don't actually have a right to. Christ went first as an example for us and he tells us flat out, you're following me and this is the direction I'm going. You knew that going in. So, you know, it's, it's, it's in the name, Christianity, you're following Christ. And what did Christ do? He suffered and he died. So I think this is just a, a thing to wrap our minds around to get a better perspective when we are suffering, even if it's suffering unto death. And the next question we said we should ask ourselves is, are we angry with God when he does specifically cause difficulty for us? Well, if yes, then you have the wrong attitude because God is perfect and it's for your own good. He chastens whom he loves. And we need to wrap our minds around that because, you know, God's goodness cannot be contingent upon the good that we feel he does in our lives. Because God is always working good, right? He works all things together for good to those who love him and keep his commands. He's always working good. He says that absolutely. But if you don't feel that it's good, does it change the fact that it is good? Well, absolutely not. So that also requires a perspective change. And if no, you're not angry with God for causing difficulty for you, then great, you have the right attitude. But these are the things we need to analyze in our lives to make sure we're on the right path. And uh, the next section of this verse, kind of, it's encouraging, but it also calls us to task, which is kind of the tone I'm trying to set for this podcast uh, episode today is, I'm not trying to um, strictly comfort you. You know, I, I do hope that you find comfort in some of this, but I'm not trying to just strictly comfort you. I'm trying to encourage you. And that's what God does in, in this next section in Hebrews. It says, strengthen the hands that hang down and the feeble knees. It reminds me of that section in Jeremiah where God tells Jeremiah, if you can't run with footmen, how will you contend with horses? It's like, you know, I hate using the term, but, you know, man up. Like, yes, you're dealing with difficult things, but strengthen the hands that hang down and the feeble knees. If you're weak need, if you're, you know, feeling like you're going to collapse, well, stop. And that is sometimes a hard answer to hear because it's like, well, I can't because this hasn't been dealt with. But still, that's the command here. Strengthen the hands that hang down and the feeble knees. And I like that because it, it kind of... Uh, creates a second wind and it might be a frustrating second wind it might not be one that we feel we have the the ability to accomplish but it's still what's commanded of us and i don't know for some reason that just kind of makes me grit my teeth and be able to bear it a little bit better uh, next let's go to first peter 2 this is one of my all-time favorite verses in the entire bible i love this verse first peter 2 verse 18, it really outlines um, how this is this is not the environment we're meant to thrive in, but we should still be thriving. You know, we should be uh, handling the things that were dealt well. 
So 1 Peter 2.18 says, Servants, be submissive to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh. And, you know, we might not have servants now and masters, and that's a different time period, but we are all servants to God and he is our master. So if anything, this is actually more applicable than it is just culturally. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh, for this is commendable, if because of conscience toward God one endures grief, suffering wrongfully. For what credit is it if when you are beaten for your faults you take it patiently? But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God, for to this you were called." That is the most important part of the script, scripture here. For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. So this is, this is incredibly powerful, and I think we could read this about a hundred times and feel it more and more strongly every time we read through it, because it, it just, it kind of shakes our preconceived notions about what Christianity is. You know, it is not the fix all for this physical life. It's just not that. It is not the call to an easy, comfortable, uh, safe life. It, it just isn't. We are called to suffer and we are called to bear it well. That's the most important part of this, I think, to suffer and to bear it well. And then this, this part about Christ as well, uh, bringing it back to Christ is always, you know, necessary. But he says, for to this you are called because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example. So he didn't just die for us on the cross to, I mean, he, he obviously did accomplish this. He, he died on the cross to forgive us of our sins and allow us to um, claim that salvation through his grace that, that he offers to us. But he also died as an example. He suffered and died as an example to us that we should follow his steps. And this is exactly what I was talking about before. When you sign on to being a Christian, you are signing up to follow Christ, the example that he left for us. We're not called to follow him as he pushes every difficult thing out of the way. We are called to follow him through the difficult things that he dealt with. And this, this next uh, verse here in 22 outlines what he went through, who committed no sin nor was deceit found in his mouth. This is part of the example Christ left for us. Verse 23 also, who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. So this is the example that Christ left for us. And for to this you are called to suffer and to bear it well. So if you think that you are following what God asked of you, which, you know, a lot of us are trying to do our best in good faith. We are trying to do what God asked of us. But if you think, yeah, I, I've followed what God asked of me, but then you suffer and you bear it poorly, then you're missing a piece. You know, you're not doing what God asked, because it says to this you were called, to suffer and to bear it well. And there is there is comfort here, because it's not just a command that God gives us, and then he leaves us on our own to see if we follow it. He does hear you, and he does know and feel what you're feeling. If any, if not, maybe even to a, a greater degree, because like it says before in the, in the Hebrews uh, scripture we looked at, we haven't suffered unto bloodshed and death. A lot of us, some, some maybe, but not a lot of us. So he probably feels even stronger the suffering that can be required of, you know, leading a Christian life. So he's not, he's not going to abandon you, but he does require things of you. And he's allowed, he is God. And we, we sometimes forget that, I think, you know. He calls us to a relationship with him, and that is wonderful and a glorious thing. But in that relationship, we can sometimes take him for granted. You know, God can become commonplace, and we forget he is God. He is the creator of the universe, the author of everything that exists, the author and finisher of our faith. He is supreme. So he requires things of you, and he's allowed to. But be sure that you 
are not starting to require things of him. Because you, on the other hand, are not allowed. We, we are not God. We are subject to him and we have committed to that. But we can't, you know, we cannot start to require things of God. We can't start to bargain with him and say, well, I will follow you. I will believe that you are good and kind and merciful and just right up until the point I don't understand it anymore. And then we're going to have a problem. Or yes, God, I will follow you. But in order to do that, I need you to give me a good and comfortable life. That's, that's not the bargain that we strike here. God says there's two ways, the way of life and the way of death. Choose life. Choose life. And that's it. You know, there is, there is no like, choose life and uh, I will do everything to make your life perfectly comfortable. He does bless us when we choose life. Absolutely. There are definitely physical blessings that come with following God. But it is not a guarantee that everything in your life will be perfect or that you will never suffer. So you cannot require things of God. Definitely ask because he wants to help you. He wants to have that relationship with you. He wants to do what he can to, you know, assure that you don't stumble. And that's his end goal. He wants you not to stumble, to make it to the end, to endure to the end. So if you ask him things, absolutely. You can petition God all throughout the Bible. It talks about praying for the things that you need and that you you want from God but you cannot require things from him so to close today I would like to read a little excerpt out of a book that I just read recently called the whisper of God and it's from a man named FW Borum and he was a uh, preacher in New Zealand for a while he, he died a while back but um, he, he wrote excellent um, essays on things and, and I think he's probably one of the best exegetes that I've ever had the pleasure of reading so if you ever um, if you ever want something to read he's an excellent choice not that I agree with everything he's ever written but he does um, draw out little pieces of scripture and makes them um, very clear and um, I don't know scriptures already profound I don't want to say he makes them profound but he expounds upon them in a way that uh, makes you see the scripture for the profundity that it already has. So this excerpt from uh, The Whisper of God says, You who do well and suffer by it, and you who do ill and gain by it, it is nothing that you hear but a small whisper of God as yet. The thunder of his power shall be unchained and shall break forth, utterly destroying the unjust and gloriously justifying the righteous. So the question I have for you today is what game are you playing? And what are you playing it for? Because both of these things, when you answer them correctly, will totally change how you view your suffering. When you, when you contemplate these questions and realize not only what you're doing, but why you're doing it, it should totally change how you view what you're dealing with. So are you playing the game that the world is playing for success in this life? Because if you are, you might actually win it. But those rules that you're playing by are never going to lead to the ultimate victory. Or are you playing the game of Christianity? And if you are, do you expect success because of it? Because if you are, you might be sorely disappointed. So you need to understand the game you're playing and understand the outcome that you're looking for. Because certain outcomes are guaranteed by certain rules and gameplay and certain outcomes are not and when we look at it wrong it can really affect our attitudes and our mindset so don't let suffering sidetrack you and don't let suffering make you start to question god and i know this can be incredibly difficult it can bring tears it can cause you to lose everything even up to and including your own life but you have been called to suffer and to bear it well. Make no mistake, you've been called to suffer and you've been called to bear it well for the sake of Jesus Christ. And the world hated Jesus Christ and made him suffer. And that's the path that all of us are taking right now. But it is the way of life that leads to victory. Following Christ is the way of life that leads to victory, even though when you play that game, it can also lead to suffering, but it will lead to victory through that suffering. This is the game that you should be playing, 
even though we're on the same board that the world is playing, you know, they're, they're playing their separate game and, and we're playing our separate game, but we're on the same kind of game board in this analogy, which is Earth, even though that's going on, you need to play to win. Play to win. I really appreciate you guys listening in today. Um, I know this was quite a bit longer than uh, the first episode of my podcast, but it's a huge subject, and I really wanted to do it justice. So thank you for uh, bearing with me all this time. really appreciate your graciousness, and I hope this uh, teaching is beneficial to you. I hope it's edifying and informative, like I said in the beginning. And, um, yeah, thank you so much. Please uh, hit subscribe, share with your friends if you think it would be beneficial to them as well. And uh, hopefully you'll tune in next time and hear... Uh, more from the Bible. Thanks, guys.